Good evening. So you've been sitting here now for one full week. And I'm sure you can feel, as we can feel, how uh, there's a beauty in the deepening, the quieting as the snow is falling. This retreat is just getting very quiet, very beautiful. And it's been very moving to me sitting conducting interviews and feeling how fully people are giving themselves into this practice. It's very, very powerful to see the power of the practice. So tonight, while we're still here, really in the heart of the retreat, I want to talk about a quality that's really at the heart or the center of the practice, and that's the quality of acceptance. A Zen master once said, enlightenment is the ability to accept reality as it is. Think about it. The ability to accept reality as it is. So after sitting here for a week, you probably noticed that if if you could even accept one sitting as it is, it would be so incredible, you know, <laughs> or even 10 minutes of one sitting, because we have this subtle tendency, even in our clearest sittings, to sort of want to, you know, manipulate a little so that we might make that good experience last, or we might keep that little pain away, and, but to really accept reality as it is, is quite a rare thing, you may be noticing. And in our daily life, uh, that is multiplied by hundreds. We live in this culture that is, it seems, really dedicated to the pursuit of avoiding reality, you know, numbing out reality and getting a facelift on reality or whatever one can do other than to just accept how it is. So it's a steep assignment. You may have noticed that. So every night, every morning, in the instructions, we just keep hearing this, this same thing. Bring yourself into this moment. See just what is true and so in this moment. And meet that with an openness, a gentleness. Just keep hearing this over and over. And... Um, what may sound sort of simple is not necessarily easy. One uh, teacher called this unconditional meditation. And I heard another teacher call it the practice of radical acceptance. Here's a poem by Master Dogen that has this tone in it. Being unstained is like meeting a person and not considering what he or she looks like. Also, it's like not wishing for more color or brightness when viewing the flowers or the moon. Spring has the tone of spring and autumn has the scene of autumn. There is no escaping it. So when you want spring or autumn to be different than it is, notice that it can only be as it is. Or when you want to keep spring or autumn as it is, reflect 
on its impermanent nature. Radical acceptance. It's easy enough about autumn and spring, but what about ourself? <laughs> I was teaching at a retreat in California, and a young woman came in to her last interview and was uh, beaming, you know, glowing, saying, I'm so happy, this is what I've always been looking for. This was the first retreat that she had ever sat, so she was really sort of amazed at what was possible. And she said, I sit and I just notice my breath moving in and out of this open space, and I just feel all this love, it's so great. And then she said, now my work is to figure out how I can always feel like this. You know, even though she'd been hearing the Dharma talks every night, it's amazing how it can just go by and that conditioning to want to always feel like this. So it's what the woman said this morning. What she said, um, she can't get any experience to last. You know, remember that woman this morning. So um, her her desire to to make that good experience last, of course, is this recipe for suffering. So I said, um, I said, actually your task is to, is, as you go home, is to uh, be willing to open to the inevitable expansions and contractions that are part of reentry and part of life. And I said, you might sit there and be watching your breath, and it may not be moving through wide open space of love, you know. You might be sitting there in sort of a mass of uh, uh, insecurity and, and planning, and your task will be to see it and open and let that be. That's the practice of acceptance, just as it is. So some years ago, I was in a phase of my practice. I say that like, sort of, is this in, in the past yet? I was in a phase, or am I still? But anyway, it was a phase in my practice at that point where I would be at retreats and this fairly intense energy phenomena would sometimes occur. And sometimes it would be interesting and pleasant, and sometimes it would be uh, weird and <laughs> scary and uncomfortable, and I would call it meditation sickness. I, uh, I would feel headache and nausea and, and uh, dizzy, and it would seem like the floor was moving like an ocean instead of a floor, and it caused for some very uh, bumpy re-entries. So I was at a pr uh, retreat, and I was about 10 days into a 20-day retreat, and these what I call symptoms, energy symptoms, began to intensify. And as they intensified, my resistance began to intensify. And it is amazing how creative the resistant mind can be. You may notice I'm sitting there trying to be mindful, and I'm thinking, you know, oh my God, here it comes. How long is this going to last? What does this mean? Is this, does this mean I'm doing the practice wrong? Or, Maybe the teachers don't understand. Maybe I'm doing the wrong practice. Maybe I'm really sick. Maybe I'm mutant. You know, maybe I have to go to the hospital. You know, just maybe I'll have to cancel my clients. You know, it's just on and on, this proliferation. So I go sort of 
with my head down into my interview, knowing I would have to reveal this whole thing. And it, I was not a beginning meditator. I'd been sitting you know, years and years at this point. And the person who I was going into the interview with, this person, <laughs> um, you know, he listens very compassionately. I'm trying to figure out how I can stop it, what's wrong, is, am I doing it wrong? He listens to all this, and at the end of the interview, very kindly, he says, you know, Deborah, why don't you try mindfulness? <laughs> and, <laughs> he, and then, I don't know if you remember saying this, he said, it's the only thing that can save you now. <laughs> he, he really said that. So, so I go back. <laughs> so I go back into the hall. And uh, that evening, someone gave a Dharma talk and they quoted the Buddha who was talking to his monks about meditation. And the Buddha said about meditation, thus train yourself. In the scene, there will be just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the imagined, just the imagined. Thus, you will have no thereby. For some combination of reasons, after I heard that talk and after this wise thing, you know, there's nothing for you now but mindfulness, I sat down in the next sitting and was able to finally just be present with the experience. Oh, pressure, tingling with no thereby, with no therefore, there's something wrong with me, I'm doing it wrong, it's wrong. Just the bare experience, tingling, pressure, and a really remarkable shift happened in me, and I really received a precious gift and the gift was that I experienced I could be completely lost in my fear, in my resistance. And a single moment of mindfulness released me. My, uh, the energy problem, or whatever one wants to call it, didn't change. But my relationship to it changed. And it was such, and still is, that particular event, I don't know if you've had these, where one particular sitting stands out, you know, in 10 years. That sitting stands out because I felt such a relief, such a relief that there's something other than being run by my wild mind and my fear. A moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. Freedom from that wild mind. So I notice that when I uh, know a talk is coming, like this talk, and I have a topic, I begin to notice that issue in my life more. So if I'm giving a talk you know, on right speech, I sort of try to gossip less for a few days. You know, you become, you feel more aware of how often you gossip. 
So I decided a few weeks ago I was going to talk about the topic of acceptance. And in California, you may have heard this huge storm blew through uh, the next day or something and knocked over so many trees and so many fences and tore off ropes and it was quite a wild, exciting event. And we were out of electricity for almost five, four and a half days is what we were out for. And, um, you know, so no heater and no stove and no lights and the refrigerator and the freezer and, you know, everything was dark and cold. My husband and I both had colds at the time. But we were like going along with it. We liked the camp, you know, we were sort of hanging out. And I would hold the flashlight while he would shave and he would make jokes about accepting reality, you know. And so we were doing okay. And um, the electricity came back on just in time, in the nick of time to clean up our house, which had become sort of messy from all the various uh, things that thawed out and all sorts of things for this huge Christmas party that we were having, just in time to get everything ready, um, and the electricity was on, and right before the people came, the washing machine flooded over and uh, filled three rooms of our house with water. And, uh, okay, we're mopping that up, the people are getting there, and just when we were getting that taken care of, the dishwasher flooded the kitchen and the den with uh, this horrid smelling water that had been sitting in, this is a true story, sitting in the bottom for the whole time the electricity was out. At which point I look at my husband and I say, why did I have to pick acceptance, you know, to talk about? You know, do I have to? Can't I just whine, you know? Can't we just resist reality as it is? I mean, did the Buddha mean this too, you know? It's not this. So, and you know, the reason I tell that story, which is true, is because, um, because it really is one thing to sit on our Zafu here in this incredibly protected environment, you know, watch a little pressure move around my head, you know? And another thing to be back in that world with the, you know, smelly water as the, as the guests were arriving, going, what is that? <laughs> you know, in my life, I, one of the things I have to work with that's, that's uh, a challenge is that I have a, uh, a recurring um, chronic illness. I don't live with it constantly, but when this virus is active, I'm sort of running on half my energy, and it causes me to experience what it's like to be handicapped or really live limited and it's been happening you haven't seen much of me and that's part of I've had it for a few weeks recently and so you haven't seen me a lot because I'm spending a lot of time sleeping which is what you do when you have this particular virus but it's been one of the main teachers in my life about acceptance in a certain way I bow to it because it's uh, you can't fight it you can't fight it and uh, we can sometimes, I in my life have said, you know, well, is the Buddha then asking me to just sort of roll over and accept anything? Just let life do its thing to me? Uh, you know, if, if someone I love is ill, I want to take care of them. If there's an injustice, I want to address it. And I, in my personal opinion, I think that the Buddha would say, uh, absolutely 
take care of that which can be taken care of. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there was a monk who got very, very ill with dysentery. And it was the Buddha himself and his assistant Ananda who found this sick monk and cleaned him and helped him and moved him and fed him. They, you know, they took care of him. And that night, the Buddha went back to the monks and gave a discourse on really how uh, important it is <clears throat> that we do take care of each other like we would take care of our own family, that we do what we can to alleviate suffering of ourselves and others. So these teachings on acceptance from the Buddha are not about becoming passive. These teachings are really addressing the immense amount of human suffering that cannot be taken care of or changed or fixed, that can only be open to, like aging, like chronic illness. And we all know that even as, as I speak right now, there are horrific atrocities occurring to innocent people this very moment uh, all over our beautiful earth. And I wouldn't begin to know how to apply the word acceptance to those kind of things. I, I'm not even interested in trying to apply that word to those things. But I have learned something in 20 years of working with people I, like everyone else here, is a psychotherapist. Um, That's everyone in California. Right? <laughs> That's right. That's right, at least in our Marin County. Um, and uh, I have worked with every imaginable kind of tragedy and abuse and, and loss and grief you, you could dream of in 20 years. And I've really watched people um, move in one of two directions in the face of great, great uh, challenge or difficulty. I've seen some harden and close and become cynical. And I've seen other people allow the deepest pain of life to break their heart open. I worked with one family who had to face the sudden death of their 10-year-old boy. And I had known this boy just a, you know, as all 10-year-old boys, a gem, a beautiful kid, suddenly down the storm drain, you know, ugh, agony, the worst, probably the worst thing that could be experienced in life is to lose a child suddenly and this family uh, of course had to just deal you know anguish grief rage everything shock it stunned everything you can dream of they had to feel but they went through it in such a way they came to a place of more compassion and kindness than they had ever dreamed possible they ended up opening their own home to other parents who'd lost children and really helping so many people 
through that phase, that first year or so, where people are just shell-shocked. Many marriages are lost, people, you know, it's very, very devastating to try to, to experience that. And these people really, really became helpers to many people. Yet we all have, all of us, this tendency to close or harden in the face of difficulty. And it's not necessarily wrong or bad. It can be actually appropriate. It's when that numbing out, that closing down, becomes our standard way of responding to life that we have a great price to pay. I heard a, uh, about an African elder who, about 40 years ago, gathered the youth of his village, and he warned them to not associate with white people because, he said, white people have lost the ability to grieve, and people who cannot grieve are very dangerous. And it's really true. This capacity that we have to close down, to not feel, is directly connected to to all the horrors, you know, the list, the racism, the environmental devastation, the nuclear armor, you know, the list that people mention every night, all these horrible things directly connected to our capacity to close down. So we want to open in the face of difficulty. We, meaning people here at this type of retreat, not the, and not everybody, but as you have been sitting here, you've probably noticed that uh, you can't just flip a switch and suddenly have an open heart. You know, you're feeling with your worst fear or grief, and it's not always that easy to open to it. And you may have discovered that if you try to force your heart open, it actually closes it more. I don't know if you've noticed that, but if you try it, you'll, you'll notice. It's a form of non-acceptance. Non-acceptance closes us. Acceptance is what opens us. So if there's not a, a switch to flip and we can't force it, what can we do? What would help us learn how to meet life in this openness instead of contraction and closeness. There's three um, little tips that I want to offer you. The first one is so obvious, but I really want to say it because I've seen it work so much in my life and in others, I just want to say it. It's this practice, the practice of mindfulness. Not, and not just any practice, or any meditation, this particular practice is so profound. If we sit and we are dealing with a pain in our leg and we're able to see it clearly and open, notice, oh, burning, throbbing, open, allow it to be there, those moments are literally training us something that's the opposite of what we're conditioned to. They're training us to open to life. And 
practice really works. It really helps this capacity to develop. We were um, at a meeting, some of us, uh, with a group of teachers, all many people who'd been sitting 20, 25 years, and we wanted to hear, you know, what's changed? And person after person t said, uh, talked about this capacity to open, to let things be, to accept as one of the real fruits of long-term practice. The, um, the second little hint or tip that I would recommend is to practice opening through the body. That our conditioning is to contract around emotional or physical pain. But as the Buddha reminded us, if you remember, in the whatever second and third noble, third noble truth was that this holding is the suffering and this opening is the relief or the freedom. So we can actually, standing in line at the grocery store, notice holding, bracing, stomach tight, shoulder, jaw, whatever. We can just become aware and we can stand and practice opening instead of tightening against being late, driving to work, oh my god, I'm late, everything in me is tight, <sighs> letting go in the body. We can practice it, and as we practice it in the body, it, it, it teaches our mind, because when the body lets go, the mind opens, and when the mind lets go, the body, so we can go either way. You can, you know, if, if you stub your toe, you notice that the first thing you want to do, there's just this, you know, and I've been practicing this for some years. I do something like stub my toe or whatever, you know, hit your finger with a nail and just practice. The second you do it, what if I opened right now? Make space right now. It's a very interesting practice. The third little hint or tip of, of helping us learn how to cultivate this capacity to open in the face of difficulty rather than close uh, is the use of wise intention. And I really cannot speak highly enough about intention. There is a Buddhist saying that everything rests on the tip of motivation. And it's true. And if you uh, have ever practiced to notice intention, you'll notice that everything we do is preceded by an intention. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. So we can consciously work with intention to help focus our energy in the direction of learning the things that are most important. And example that's... Um, about what I'm speaking about is the use of the bodhisattva vow, where the bodhisattva vows to use whatever arises. The bodhisattva says, I vow to use whatever arises for my own liberation and the liberation of all beings. And that means whatever. Even if the sun should rise in the west, they say, I will use that for the benefit of all beings. Even 
the death of a child. It's a very powerful intention to work with. And when it's reinforced through daily chanting and prayer, which is common with this particular vow, it really shapes and guides the life and the actions of the person using it. I, uh, I use it myself, and many teachers I know and many friends I know work with this particular intention because it's such a uh, huge container. And the way we work with it, the people that I've talked to, is to uh, often at just at the beginning of a sitting or the beginning of a retreat or the beginning of a work day to just silently remember, I'm doing this for my own liberation and the liberation of all beings, whatever arises. And that's that whatever arises part that's really uh, a big, a big one. I, um, we use it in, in our marriage. And so when you think of, you know, whatever arises, even the football game every Sunday, yes, even that, you know, the, do we have to use how many hours of football, you know, do I have to use for my own liberation and the liberation of all beings? But that's the intention, that's the, that's the, uh, the guiding intention. Having a, a guiding intention is, is like going into the wilderness with a clear destination. I'm a, a person who spends a lot of time in the wilderness, so um, I don't know if you have much wilderness back here, back east, but where I live, there's huge areas of... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm sincere. I, th I thought there were fences around everything. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm such a California person. People kid me. They say, you can't hide it, can you, Deborah? Okay, so um, I, you go to the, you're going into the wilderness, and you, you've heard about this small, little, beautiful alpine lake that's off trail. And it's way up there and over two passes but it's worth it. So you go out of your way to, um, to talk to people who've been there, and you, you hear about the best route. You do everything you can do to figure out how you get there, and then you set off for your adventure knowing that you'll be dealing with and accepting the journey uh, and whatever comes as part of your journey. And that's how we work with Roy's intention. Clarify the intention, then let it go and accept what comes. The intention is powerful. Having an intention does not mean we know how. Does not mean I know how to have liberation for all beings, help all beings be liberated. It means I'm willing. And that's really different. I have a friend who um, has been working with this particular intention for years, as I assume a number of you probably have. And she wanted more than anything to have a child. And finally, last year, at this exact time, wonder of wonder, at age 41, she got pregnant unexpectedly after all those years of trying. 
and everyone was so happy. And uh, about a month into this pregnancy, we were talking, and she said, "You know, I'm so happy, and um, you know, I've been, I've been not a mother so long, and I'm really seeing how what a deep path of surrender. You know, this is surrendering my life, my body, my future, my career, and I'm willing." She said, "I am willing to." surrender to whatever this child asks of me and use it for my awakening. This is my path. I'm, I'm committed. So several weeks after that, I sat with this friend while she had a miscarriage and, you know, devastated. This, uh, she had no way of knowing if this particular miracle would ever, ever come back in this life that she would maybe not get to be a mother at all. Just, you know, tears coming down her face and she said, you know, Deborah, I guess we don't get to choose what we surrender to. We can only choose to surrender. Yes, that was such a vivid moment there in the bathtub when she said that, because it's truth. It's the truth of our life. We can only have that intention to surrender and use what comes. And I watched how she was supported by her deep guiding intention that she had made for years and particularly at the beginning of that pregnancy to use this for her awakening. She hadn't intended that it would be that, but she did and she's been um, it's been a very powerful time for her of, of awakening. There is a, a wonderful American Buddhist nun named Pema Children. If you haven't found her books yet, I recommend them. And she says, <clears throat> We can make friends with what we reject, what we see as bad in ourselves and in other people. And at the same time, we can learn to be generous with what we cherish, what we see as good. If we begin to live in this way, something in us that may have been buried for a long time begins to ripen. This something is called bodhicitta, or the awakened heart. And traditionally, when we're working on awakening our heart, we begin with ourself, as we have in metta, and then share it with others. So, when we talk about this idea of uh, loving ourselves or accepting ourselves, I know that there can be a uh, tendency to think about it as a sort of California self-absorbed thing, you know, oh, it's about loving yourself again. <laughs> but really, it's a very essential and, and a really profound part of our spiritual journey. The Buddha says, Love yourself and be awake, today, tomorrow, and always. First, establish yourself in the way. 
then teach others, and so defeat sorrow. I have a story I love of, that really touches on this topic of self-acceptance, and it's about a character, Trumpa Rinpoche, I'm sure many of you have heard of, who has um, a great teacher, who has quite a reputation for um, completely accepting himself, for better or for worse. <laughs> uh, but that is his reputation. And the story is about a 15-year-old, what do you call a, a kid, boy, young man, person? Uh, what's the politically correct thing nowadays? Is, we'll call him a kid. A uh, 15-year-old kid that uh, was born and raised in a tough, violent uh, L.A. scene. This kid, Juan, was his name, was a gang member since the age of 13. And um, people who, who knew him uh, were a little afraid of him. He was tough. He had an attitude. He was, you know, he would hit you. You know, he, he came from a place where people got killed on a regular basis. And he had the opportunity at this summertime of his 15th year to go to a program in the Rocky Mountains. And he ended up staying in a home with some of the students of Trumpa Rinpoche. And they said about this boy Juan that um, although he was a real handful and they were a little afraid of him because he was so mean and he could say really mean things or, or like slap you, um, they also really liked him because he had this spark and this quickness and this humor. So one night they were going to hear Trumpa Rinpoche teach and uh, they took, invited Juan and he came. And at the end, sometimes Trumpa Rinpoche would sing what is called the Shambhala Anthem. And uh, his students would tend to cringe and get embarrassed because he was sort of known for singing this sort of loud, off-key, shrill, right into the microphone, having total acceptance for himself, not caring, you know. <laughs> and so his students were sort of cringing, you know, and they look over at this boy, Juan, and he's crying. And so later they said, Juan, what was, how was that? And he said, I have never seen anyone that brave. He said, that guy was not afraid to be a fool. And the fact that Trumpa Rinpoche had no guards up, his, he had no armor protecting him, allowed Juan to drop his armor. And that tenderness that was needed to come out was touched. And it turned out that summer, that night, was a turning point in his life. He, the story has a happy ending. He went to college and he went back to LA to work with kids in the street. Uh, but the reason I tell the story is that it really points to the importance and the power of one person, you or me or anyone, who would completely accept themselves one person who is just okay with himself can change the life. He changed the life of that kid because he finally got underneath that tough armor and could find his heart. And we can all do that.
So when we talk about this idea of loving ourselves or accepting ourselves, it's a little delicate. It came out this morning in the questions in the, uh, about right effort. How do I love myself without having the string on the lute be too loose and not make music? How, how, how do I find the right balance uh, so that loving myself is not a sort of permission to just get away with anything and, and do whatever I want or, or harm people? Um, I was at one retreat with a uh, Tibetan Lama who had a very, uh, barely spoke English, but he was so sweet. And he, he sort of leans over, he says, very important, love yourself, love, love self. He said, but is love yourself napping in every sitting period? No, no, he said, he said love yourself is, he said, love yourself is use precious incarnation to practice dharma. You know? <laughs> That's love yourself. So it's a, it's a very delicate balance. <laughs> and it takes, uh, takes discipline. It takes work to love ourselves. It's not always just easy. Love yourself is just easy. It takes real work. In fact, sometimes some of the hardest work. I have uh, a friend. I'm telling stories tonight about my friends. You're going to notice. This guy is a character. He's in his early 50s, and he has um, uh, traveled the world. He's uh, got friends everywhere. People love him. He's been successful in business, but at his 50th birthday, he uh, realized that the thing he hadn't done that he really wanted to do was to have a real committed spiritually centered marriage. He'd been in several long-term live-in relationships, but he was ready for the real long, full long haul. So uh, several months after his big birthday party where he announced that, um, <laughs> so, every, so everyone knew, um, he met this great woman. And they were in a, you know, a good relationship for um, a year or so, and, and they got engaged, and he gave her you know, the family engagement ring from seven generations. You know, his family was stunned. And Michael is going to get married. You know, he's 51 years old. And um, so it was, everyone was really happy about that. And uh, then a few months before the wedding, the relationship came to a screeching halt. And uh, he was really, really, really hurt. And it, it pushed him into some very deep work and very needed work on himself. Even though he'd sort of been working on himself for years, as so many of us have, certain things come along and drop you into the next level. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like this retreat. <laughs> so. Uh, A few weeks before the canceled wedding date, all of his close friends, including me, got a phone call. And uh, he said, I've decided not to sit home and mope on that day. Uh, there's going to be a wedding. I have decided to marry myself. <laughs> <laughs> and you're invited. 
And I couldn't believe it, but I had to lead a retreat that day. I was in the wilderness, but I saw the videotape. <laughs> Every wedding has a video, right? So I watched the video. And here it was, you know, the flowers and the clothes and the friends and the food, the whole thing. It was a wedding. He's dressed up. He did it on the deck of my house. So, um, you know, outside and the flowers, and, and there he is, this big guy, six foot five, um, and sort of round, and uh, in his suit, standing in between the flowers by himself. <laughs> on the video, and uh, it was something. And so after some prayers and some poems, he, uh, he talked, and he said, I, uh, I realized in the last few months since this breakup that my whole life and all of my relationships have been run by a sense of, of unworthiness. Actually, he used the word self-loathing. Um, that there's always been this feeling that, that how I am is not good enough to be loved, that I need to be better than I am somehow. So I'm always trying and I'm always messing up everything because I'm trying to be better than I am to get love. And he said, I see how much suffering this has caused myself and so many people. And in the last, he said, the last month or so, at age, whatever, 53, I've finally begun to experience just accepting myself as I am. So I've decided to marry myself, he said, and he takes out this beautiful ring, <laughs> and he makes this commitment to himself to, um, he says, with this ring, I commit to the path of unconditionally loving myself. And he married himself. <laughs> it's California only, she says. <laughs> it's true. I'll tell him you said that. Um, and then he read this beautiful Rumi, Rumi poem, which I will read you. It's short, so listen close. Rumi says, The pearl went up for auction, but no one had enough. So the pearl bought itself. Mm. Yeah, there's something about that. I think the reason that hits us is because we all know that finally that's what we all have to do. We all have to have the courage, and it takes courage, as you see, as you sit here, to see our own wounds and our own beauties and our own shortcomings and accept it the way Trumpa Rinpoche did. No one else is going to do that. We have to come to that. And it's quite probable that as you sit here, you come across some parts of yourself that are very difficult, that feel unacceptable. Like, I could name a whole list, couldn't I? I mean, like greed or selfishness or lust. There's so much. Standing in the line for food, you know, wondering, is that person taking too much? I want mine, you know, I want more. I want more spiritual experiences. I want more time with the teacher who I want, I want, you know. 
So we see, we come to retreat like this and we tend to see things magnified. The task is not to judge, not to hate ourselves, not to reject ourselves when we see this stuff, but to see it clearly, name it, oh, this is wanting, this is desire, and embrace it. And to embrace greed does not mean that we act it out. It means that we're making room in our heart for our own human imperfection. And when we have room in our heart for our humanness, there's then naturally room for the humanness of others. And that's a gift that we can offer to each other. So to talk about loving ourselves or accepting ourselves is not about a resignation, sort of, okay, you know, I'll accept I'm getting wrinkles, you know, it's <laughs> accept my gray hair. It's not a sort of, uh, and it's not an attitude, uh, like a, a, a new age sort of affirmation or, or, or positive attitude. It's uh, like, you know, I love myself, I love myself. It's not that. It's a very uh, deep opening and letting go in the heart and in the uh, body and in the mind. When we can finally love some part of ourselves that we have always believed was unlovable, we're setting ourselves free. And when we can sit here in this hall and be with something difficult, and we can bear the unbearable, that's what Alice Miller calls it, we're setting ourselves free. Joseph Goldstein once said that the limit of what we can accept is the limit of our freedom. The reason that the Zen master said that enlightenment is the ability to accept reality as it is, is that our small self, our little self, our little personality can't stretch that big, isn't big enough to accept all of reality. It's only the vastness, the boundarelessness of our true nature that is that open that can accept reality as it is. And when we stretch to embrace some part of ourselves, a sublime, a beautiful part of ourselves that we may have never dreamed was in us, or when we stretch to embrace a very dark, ugly part of ourselves that we really would rather not find out was in us, we are stretching through and beyond our identification with that small self. And we find ourselves just resting more and more in this open spaciousness, in the ease of being. I have, I guess I would say I had, a dear friend who, who stretched all the way recently.
Her name was Jessica, but we called her Chica, and she died several months ago of breast cancer. Uh, really uh, extraordinary woman, brilliant, creative, and completely uh, intensely committed to her journey of awakening. And in the last couple years of her life, most of her work was the work of acceptance. And, and she knew it, and she was working. It was not a sort of passive thing. She was with it. And, you know, there's a lot you have to accept when your body breaks down. I mean, she had to accept letting go of the work she loved and letting go of, of, of not being able to support herself. And she had to accept pain and, you know, nausea. And she had to accept being taken care of. She had to accept losing her hair, which was quite a big edge for Chica to let go of that beautiful hair. But she really did meet all of this and, and work through and open and open and accept and accept. But there was one thing that was really hard for her to accept. And that was that she didn't feel ready to die. She, she wanted to live. She didn't want to accept that it was her time to die. So this fighting for life actually served her for a while and then it became a source of real suffering at a certain point. And uh, about three weeks before she died, she had a dream. This is what she said. I dreamed a dog came and licked me all over with unconditional love. It felt so good. And when I woke up, I knew it's not about whether I live or die. It's about love. Life is about love. And sometimes magic does happen when love touches something that's been stuck. And, and the magic was that from then on, she accepted living or dying. And the even greater magic was that she, she really became that love. That's all that was left. She was dealing with tremendous amount of pain because she, by her own choice, was using the bare minimum of pain medication because she so wanted to be there for every moment, which she managed to do to the second she died. She was awake and present and conscious. But she was dealing with all this pain and the loss of control that goes along with severe illness, uh, but no resistance to it. She was with it, but not resisting. Not resisting death, not resisting real pain. It was extraordinary. And you'd ask her, you know, how are you doing? And she might be sort of writhing around in pain, and she'd say, just love. Just love now, only love. And, she, and it wasn't just words. She was radiating this to everyone who came near, right down to the last hour, minutes. The last words she said were to look right in the eyes of her friend, I love you. Very extraordinary. And it's as though all this work that she had done with her intention, deep intention, and all this work she had done on acceptance, acceptance, had worn through her conditioning and she was able finally to receive the unconditioned 
to receive this vast love that she had always believed, like we believe, she believed she was separate. And it turned out she wasn't separate from that love. And we are all so fortunate to be sitting here in the circumstances that we have the life opportunities and circumstances to, to be here and practice because most of the people in this room don't have cancer. Some do, uh, but most of us don't. But we're doing the same sacred work that Chica did. And we can learn the same sacred lessons, the sacred art of acceptance. We can learn that we are not separate from infinite love and infinite compassion. We don't have to have this terrible disease. We can practice and learn. And when we sit here and we meet a moment of discomfort, either in body or mind, and open to it, we're learning that. We might not know we're learning it. She didn't know where she was going to end up when she was just meeting thing after thing. But we're learning it. And when we use metta, either here or at, in our daily life, and we meet ourselves with real kindness and compassion and mercy instead of self-judgment, we are learning. We are learning this sacred lesson. Trumpa Rinpoche said, to be fully present with our experience as it is, without shrinking or turning away, is to become a warrior of the heart. Warrior of the heart. And that's what Chika really did. And also that's what you're doing when you work with awareness and compassion and acceptance. So I finish with the words of Nisargadat Maharaj. The essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it's acceptable, it's pleasant. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and all peace. So let's just sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.